All right, Erev Tov, good evening. I'm very excited that the Thursday night class is back in action. I know it's a difficult night in general Thursdays, but uh, it is what it is. Usually I would start with defining a term like Agadah. What is Agadah? But before we can talk about Agadah, we first have to study what it is that we're going to be studying. I have an allergy to people who don't know the history of the things they study. Uh, so we want to start there. That's where I'm going to start today. Bezalat Hashem, next week we're going to discuss the Rambam's introduction to Haggadah. The following week we're going to do Rabbeinu Avraham, the son of the Rambam's introduction to Haggadah. From there we already see how we're sailing and which direction we're going. Uh, but before we discuss anything, I just want to throw it out there that this Shi'u is a continuation uh, independent continuation, so a self-standing continuation of the Monday, Tuesday night Koda. It's going to stay at that same level of people who know and study and learn. Uh, I'm expecting that the amount of effort and energy that's put into it is at least what we put into it here on this end. So there's a Google Classroom. If you don't know how to use a Google Classroom, now's your time to start learning how to use a Google Classroom. The Google Classroom was started last night, so if you don't have whatever was in the Google Classroom, that's totally expected, precisely why I, I, I wasn't expecting everyone to bring papers or anything like that. The papers for tonight were optional in the first place, but they are there in the Google Classroom. You use your Gmail address to join Google Classroom. Anyone who's sitting at this table received already a personal invitation from me. Uh, if you didn't receive an invitation, so you just want to go to Google Classroom, it's like classroom.google.com, put in the class code, which I sent out by email to everybody sitting at this table, and then you take that code, plug it into Google Classroom, and it will automatically join you here. Uh, every week we're going to have things that we do that we prepare before the shiul. So I'd rather, instead of spending time reading to you what was uh, assigned last week, for you to read, come prepared, and then we can discuss what it is over there. Uh, this is especially going to become important when we get involved in the Gemara itself. We start taking apart Gemarot. Instead of sitting and explaining the Gemara first, you already have a week to study the Gemara on your own. And then what we're going to do here in the shiul is take apart that Gemara in the lens of Agadah, in the way of Chazal, but let's zoom back just a moment. I said I wasn't going to define Agadah precisely because Agadah is a very hard word to define. The reason I use the word Agadata in Aramaic as opposed to Agadah is very simple. Modern Hebrew did a lot of things. One of the great things that modern Hebrew did was give access to Jews around the world to a language in which they can understand the vast majority of rabbinic literature. So an Israeli has an advantage over anybody else when it comes to studying Torah, to learning books, most of the language is there in front of them. I say most because not Aramaic. And perhaps there are old sentence constructs in Biblical Hebrew or even uh, the Hebrew of the Mishnah or the Talmud. It's a little difficult for an average Israeli to understand. But overall, the fluency of Hebrew has increased in the world. Baruch Hashem, thanks to modern Hebrew. On the other hand, certain words that are used in modern Hebrew are not the same words that we use when we say things in the language of Chazal. So for example, Agadah, in modern Hebrew, doesn't mean what we mean when we say Agadah. Agadah in modern Hebrew means a legend, or a fable, or uh, like some kind of uh, hocus-pocus uh, story, like a folk tale is an Agadah. Agadot, the legends. Normally we would refer to this genre of study as Agadot Chazal, the Agadot of our rabbis. But if I would tell an Israeli Agadot Chazal, that would mean the fables of our rabbis or the folklore of the rabbis, and I don't appreciate even even many books of Enyakov are translated as legends of the Talmud. Now, that being said, the reason why I chose Agadah is because Agadah is an Aramaic version of Agadah, 
and therefore it doesn't have any of the Israeli preconceived notions to it. So Agadata will be, but, but, Agadata is also referred to by many other names, and today I'm not going to take them apart, but sometimes you'll see Chachamim refer to them as Midrashim, or Midrashei Chazal, Midrash Halacha, or you'll see words like Hagada. the word Hagada. It means Agada. It's the same thing. In a, Aleph and He are interchangeable in the language. And therefore you'll find that some refer to Hagada as Agada, Agada as Hagada. When it comes to Pesach in many Yemenite communities, the book is called Agadata de Pisha, the, the, the Agada of Pesach. It's the whole story of the Pesach narrative. It's much easier to define Agada by what it's not than by what it is. And that's a very rare exception to a rule. Normally you want to define something about there. I once spoke to somebody who was Neturei Karta. I said, tell me, what's your, what's your philosophy? He said, we are not Sionim. We are not Zionists. I said, I get it. I get what you're not. But what are you? What, what, like, what are you really? What else do you have aside from what you're not? He says, that's it. We are not Sionim. I said, you have to have something that you are. And from here I realized that many people define themselves only by what they're not. They don't actually have any self-worth on their own. I'm not that. So what are you? I don't know. Agada, unfortunately, we're going to have to resort to what it's not. What Agada is not, it's not the halachot of the Talmud. It's not all stories. It's not all midrashim. It's not all uh, fantasies. It's not all uh, what you might think it is. But Agada is essentially every rabbinic writing in the Talmud that doesn't directly come to teach you a halacha. So whereas in the beginning of uh, Masech and Brachot, we're going to discuss about what time Shema begins and when Shema ends. And the commentaries of the Halakha are going to become obsessed. When does Shema begin? When does Shema end? What is sunset? When does sunset? What is sunset really? Is sunset when the sun begins to set? Is sunset when the sun ends to set? What is dawn? Is dawn when the sky becomes light? Is dawn when? And so on. And, so on. and what happens if you miss Shema? Rabbis say until midnight. What if you miss midnight? Can you rely on the opinion of Rabban Gamliel until the morning? And so on and so forth. These are the halachic conversations you have in the Talmud. Uh, in Agadah, we don't deal with that side of the Talmud. If you wanted to know halachot, your best route to studying halacha would be to take a Mishneh Torah of the Rambam, Ashukhan Aruch of Yosef Karo, to sit down and learn halacha. You don't have to peel back all the layers of the onion to start from the beginning and go forward. The Agadah is the side that is not so blazed yet. It's the trail that many people haven't ventured down yet. There's a path that's many people walk down that road. There's some dirt roads, back roads. That's the world of Agadah. I'm actually feeling on the verge of adventurous, brave, slightly stupid you know, when my mother and father moved into their house in San Diego, they had a white carpet in their whole house. White carpet. Like, white, white carpet. Not oh, off-white, not yellow, white. And one of the neighbors came over. Oh, wow, you have kids with a white carpet? You must be very brave. In American English, very brave means you must be very stupid. But you just say brave because it sounds better when you say brave. <coughs> We're going to open up a can of worms. Because the road of Agadah is not as paved as the road of Halakha. If we were studying now Talmud in the lens of Halakha, I could in the middle of my sleep walk you through where you find the Rambam and the Rif and the Rosh and the Ra, and then you want to go to the Bet Yosef and the Tur, end up with the Halakha in your hands, we could trace the whole way through. In the world of Agadah, it's the wild west of Jewish study. It's an area that's been neglected by many Chachamim. In fact, when I was in Yeshiva, in some of the Yeshivot that I was in, 
they would just skip the Agadot entirely. Either they would read it very quickly, like superficially, just read it and get to the next part that's important, or they would just skip it. They say, oh, this is not important, read the next page. The neglect of the study of Agadah, or the fear of some to venture into uncharted waters like Agadah, has led to this really being a discipline that very few people are involved in. And that's where, into Jewish history steps, Rabbi Yaakov ben Chaviv, or Jacob ibn Habib. I sent you a, a Wikipedia link. I, when we post rabbinic biographies, it's important that you become fluent in who these rabbis are, because we're going to be dealing with them very much from here on out. Uh, in the handout that I gave you, I want to walk you through some of the, the history of the En Yaakov. En Yaakov is obviously the eye of Yaakov, named after Rabbi Yaakov ben Chaviv, who was the one who put together all of the Agadot of the Talmud, into one book. If you go to the Google Classroom, it'll be there in the material section under introductions. There's only one for now. It'll say historical introduction to Enyako. While you're looking, when I said this is a continuation of Kolem, I also mean that the Shiwim are not going to be cute Shiwim where they start somewhere, they end somewhere. We have a beginning, middle, uh, conclusion, and then we're done. We're going to be an ongoing study of Torah. And every Shur is going to bring with it whatever the Bet Midrash will, wherever the Bet Midrash will guide us. Rabbi Yaakov and Chaviv on page 26, or Ted Zayn, it's not the same numbers in Hebrew and English. So I'll go by the English numbers at the bottom. Yaakov ben Chaviv set out to go through the entire Talmud and extract from the Talmud all of the Agadot, meaning every non-halachic segment of the Talmud. He makes it very clear, if you look in footnote Ayin Hay, makes it very clear that the reason why he extracted the Agadot from the Talmud was not because he felt like he needed to give rabbis more material to, to give drashot with, you know, nice stories, nice teachings. He said there are so many books of, of uh, drashot, so many books where you can go and find a nice dvatoa, that just for that reason alone, it wouldn't be worth it. Rather, he mentions, if you look at the main paragraph, Rabbi Yaakov writes that the main reason, Everything is rhyming here. Be'akob Mechaviv says, I'm getting to an old age. And in my old age, I want to know what can I leave behind? What is something that I can give the Jewish community that they will use? And essentially, he sets out to give us a book, a compilation of all the Agadot. They should know that it's not so simple that people appreciated what Rabbi Yaakov was doing. Hey, you could also do this job, no? You could also take a Talmud, take a pencil, and highlight all the parts that are stories and teachings and all the parts that are non-halakha. What is so special about the work of Rabbi Yaakov and Chaviv? Here you learn a lesson in don't always think that the clock never runs out of time. Rabbi Yaakov and Chaviv had a grand plan. A plan that he never merited to finish. He merited to start. His son, the Galbach, Rabbi Levi ben Chaviv, he took over and continued the work of his father. But Rabbi Yaakov ben Chaviv decided to gather together all of the Agadot of Chazam into 12 main categories. Why 12? The 12 tribes. If he's Yaakov, he's giving birth to 12 tribes. 12 tribes. If you look here on page 27, Amud HaTorah. 
all the Agadot that are in the pillars of Torah. So anything to do with Torah. Amud Havodah, anything to do with the pillar of the service of Hashem. Amud Gminut Chasadim, the pillar of acts of kindness. Amud Din, the Amud of judgment. Amud Haimet, the pillar of truth. Amud Hashalom, the pillar of peace. Amud Hatshuva, the pillar of Teshuvah, of returning to Hashem. Amud Gan Eden VeGehenom, the pillar of everything that has to do with Gan Eden and Gehenom, the afterlife. Amud Zichon Dvarim, the pillar of remembering things. Meaning what? Remembering to observe halakha and mitzvot properly so you get into Gan Eden or Chaz Shalom to Gehenom. Amud Kisei Akavod, the pillar of the throne of Hashem. Amud Bet Mikdash, the pillar of the Bet Mikdash. So everything has to do with the Bet Mikdash. Amud Biyat HaMashiach, Utchiyat HaMetim, and the pillar of the coming of the Mashiach and the resurrection of the dead. It's very interesting that those are two different pillars. That first there's a Ben Migdash, and then there's a Mashiach and the resurrection of the dead. But that's really for a different Shi'u, for a different time. If you look here at the bottom of page 27, there's a very long footnote. Ein Zayin. He says, or I'll say, there always will be haters. Haters will be haters. Whenever someone sets out to do something good, there are always people who try to get in the way. They don't see something so grand. Why should a rabbi involve himself in just collecting, just being an editor, of a compiler of texts? And Yaakov and Chavi feels like he has to justify it. So, you know, someone comes to the library, someone comes to the library and he sees there are many volumes of books. And in these volumes, there are different handwritings. There are those that are written in Ketav Ashurit, Beautiful, bold print, like the Torah print. And he's always going in and out and in and out. He's trying to look up books. He decides to copy for himself all of these books to his personal library. So he copies down all the books that are written in beautiful print. But he notices that between the blocks of the beautiful print, there's very cryptic writing. Like, you know, handwritten. Uh, someone here in the Shi'u is still an expert in writing cursive. There's another generation in the world that doesn't know cursive anymore. So sometimes when people get letters in cursive, I met somebody who doesn't even know how to read cursive. He gets a letter in cursive doesn't know how to read it. So the people, it's a part they skip over. It's not as nice of a font. There are books that we study with. There are books that you read. You know, you've been using a nice chumash for a long time. And then you go to some Bet Knesset somewhere where they have old chumashim. Like an old printing of a chumash. Not that old. Somewhere in the 80s. And you open it up and you have a hard time reading from it. Because you got used to a nicer print. Ever happened to you? So the same thing happens in the Torah. There are parts of the Talmud that are so beautiful, that are so clear, that the Chachamim spend so much time elaborating. That's the area of the Halakha, of Al-Fasi, the Rambam. They went and they paved the trail through the ways of Halakha. But there are so many parts of the Talmud that are gaps. They're gaps because no one dealt with them. He said, and at a certain point, the student felt that he had to go back and do justice also to the parts of the Talmud that nobody else cared about. And that was the purpose of creating Ein Yaakov, was to compile together all the teachings of our rabbis that have in them emunot, that have in them things, we're going to read about that in just a moment. But he essentially decided to take all the writings and split them up into different categories. Twelve. So now you wanted to go look up something? You wanted to see what Chachamim had to say about Mashiach? You open it up and you had chapters on that topic. You wanted to see what Chachamim said about studying Torah? You would open up the book and you would find it like that. It was more than just sifting away the halachot from the Talmud and retaining everything else. The Rabbi Yaakov Chaviv changes his mind. On page 28... 
28, Rabbi Yaakov ben Chaviv says, I didn't finish my work. Meaning, he decides at a certain point that it's not right to rearrange the writings of our rabbis. You should leave things where they are. If things are found in Masechet Brachot, leave them in Masechet Brachot. Things are found in Masechet Sukkah, leave them in Masechet Sukkah. Things are found in Masechet Sanhedrin, leave them in Masechet Sanhedrin. Rather, he worked out an elaborate system in which he would condense every Masechet to just the Agadah, and then he would write an index. And he would say, anything that has to do with Mashiach, you could look up uh, paragraph number 3 in Sanhedrin, paragraph number 7 in Sukkah. And that way, he could preserve the order of the Talmud, while still keeping true to his goal of sifting through everything. In the beginning of this project, somewhere in Seder Moed, maybe right after Seder Moed, Rabbi Yaakov ben Chabiv passes away. And not only does he not finish his work, but there's a whole rest of the Talmud that wasn't finished. And his son, the Galbach, Rabbi Levi, continues doing his father's work, but it seems that this idea of connecting every piece of the Talmud to one of these 12 pillars fell by the wayside. And we only have Rabbi Yaakov's index to the first volume that he put out. And the second volume already didn't have an index. And subsequent printings of the En Yaakov don't even print the 12 pillars. So you can't even know what Rabbi Yaakov arranged in that order. And the En Yaakov that we have today is a collection of Agadot in order of the Talmud, but not in order of topics. Now, there's something good about that, but I'll get to that in just a minute. That'll be on page 29. On page 28 at the bottom, Rabbi Yaakov ben Chabib didn't just collect Agadot. He also put out something called Pirush HaKotev. I took a photocopy of an edition of En Yaakov that I highly recommend. It used to come, it used to come only in a, a six-volume set or eight-volume set, but now they sell them volume by volume. I think every volume is $25. Uh, from New York. You can order them if you want a link. But I'm going to send around a sample page of a page of En Yaakov, the way it looks in the newer printings of En Yaakov. And you'll see that there's a page of Gemara with the Nikudot, Rashi, the Maharsha. You have here the Kotev, that's the commentary of uh, Rabbi Yaakov ben Khabib on the Talmud. So obviously this commentary dies when he dies. We, at a certain point in the Talmud, no longer have the Pirusha Kotev. Notice his humility. He doesn't even write his name. The Kotev is like, I'm just writing. I'm just collecting things to put as a commentary. He never gives himself much credit. You're going to see at the end of today's shul, his son writes, that was one of his strong points. It doesn't make a difference that he was one of the greatest rabbis of his generation. He never considered himself to be someone so great that ego should get in the way. Now you have here some other commentaries like the Yaakov, the Rif. This is not the Rif that you know. This Rif is really known as the Riaf. Rabbi Yoshiyahu Pinto, not that one you know either. The Rav Pinto, for many, he was four generations, perhaps the last of the rabbis, who received smicha from those who received smicha from Rabbi Yosef Cairo. So if you remember Mahari Berav, the rabbi of Maran, Mahari Berav, remember him? Mahari Berav refounded the Sanhedrin in Tzfat. And he gives hasmacha to Rabbi Yosef Cairo. At that point in time, the world blows over. How dare you open up a new Sanhedrin? How dare you do Nitzvat? And it seems that at that point, Mari Berav stopped giving Hasmacha. But Maran still had students, and he gave Hasmacha, and they gave Hasmacha. And the last of the Musmachim from the Sanhedrin in Tzfat is the Rif here, the Rabbi Yosheo Pinto, uh, this commentary. You have Et Yosef. You have different commentaries here collected from more contemporary works. Sometimes you'll find here 
the Benishchai, sometimes you find here uh, uh, Rabbeinu Bachaye, the Maharal of Prague, Rav Yonatan Eibshit, the Malbim. Here on this page they have Tzidkat Tzadik, that's Rav Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin, one of the early Hasidic Kabbalists. Fascinating personality. Rav Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin grew up as a Mitnaged. He grew up as an opponent of Hasidut. Then he became a student by, I want to say Rav Eli Melech of the Jets, but I don't know if I'm right. It could be the Chosev Lubin. It could be. I don't know where. Is Rebbe what? In eight months, he already began writing books of Hasidut. In eight months, he already absorbed whatever he could from his teacher. And then, if I'm not mistaken, he maybe only studied by him for two years before he became the spokesperson uh, for the movement at the time. Uh, I'm just passing it around. If you want to see what a page of Enyakov looks like. If you want this edition, I could help you get one after the Shiu. So what... He does in the Kotev is he collects all the relevant commentaries that deal with the sources. Yeah, let's read it together. Nabanov 28. I wanted them to be able to find next to every piece of Gemara the writings of Rashi and Tosfot and all the other French rabbis, the Chidushe Haramban and the writings of the Ramban, the Rashba, the Ridba, the Haran. I wasn't satisfied just by translating or just explaining the words of the Talmud. It's not enough to quench someone's thirst. Notice this is the real version, real understanding of the word hashkafa. The way people use hashkafa today as in some kind of Jewish philosophy is incorrect. Hashkafa literally means your, the way you look at things. Your, there's a word for it. Your sights. To set, I set my sights. Look, see down upon us from your holy place. He said, I want to do something more valuable, and that is to explain actually the content of the Agadot. If you look on the top of page 29, the son, the Ralbach, the Bilevi writes, Oh, okay. He said, initially his father didn't intend to write a commentary, but people kind of persuaded him, hey, we want you to write a commentary on the book that you're printing. It became such a big commentary that when the Ralbach and Seder Moed stopped printing his commentary, people boycotted his books. They wouldn't buy them without his commentary. They wanted his commentary, and then he continued uh, writing them. Look what he writes here, something interesting in the second paragraph. And then the student who's studying Agada will now be satisfied that they have all the commentaries in front of them. And if all of these commentaries were sufficient in helping him understand what the Talmud intended, that's good. And if he still needs uh, more explanations, uh, to understand the Talmud. Hareshut and bold. Hareshut and I let every person write however they want to write. Comment however they want to comment. He said, unless people deviate and understand the Agadot against the way the Torah commentaries translated. Because 
And he said, we all have to adhere to the words of the rabbis who understood Agadah properly, but I'm not saying that I'm the only way to understand Agadah. I'm putting the Agadah together, I'm suggesting a commentary, but every student has the right to understand Agadah as long as it falls within the parameters of the Jewish faith. This is a little bit of a stab. It's a jab, is a better word. It's a jab at who? He writes the Toranim, the Mefarshim Toranim. Other place he calls them the commentaries that are of Emunah, that are believers in Hashem. You know that at this point in time already, Spanish Jewry is split into two groups. This is split into those who may be identified more as Maimonideans or rationalists, and those who are split into Kabbalists, and those, uh, some were running after philosophy, and some were running after the Kabbalah that was coming out of France and Germany at the time. It'll be Yaakov ben Khabib is saying, I don't allow you to use my book to study it in the way of the Sephardic rabbis who go according to philosophy. I don't let. He was very adamant uh, opponent of this understanding of uh, the Talmud, the more rational understanding of the Agadot, which is very interesting that the commentary that you see here, uh, it's actually not on this page, there's a commentary on the end Yaakov, it's called the commentary of Haboneh. If this is the writer, he's the builder. Who's the builder? His name is Rabbi Leon Modina, or Aryeh de Modina. Uh, Leon is a lion in French, yes? So Aryeh is... A lion in, in Hebrew. And, uh, different people use different names. He wrote a number of books. Ari Nohem, the lion that roars. Mm-hmm. Ari Nohem is the writing of Rabbi Leon de Modena that was all against the Zohar and against Kabbalah. Even though he came from a family of Kabbalists, he felt very strongly that Kabbalah, especially the Zohar, was not a true book. Many rabbis responded to the work of the Ari Nohem. I just got my hands uh, on a copy of the Ari Nohem and on a copy of the rabbis who responded back to the Ari Nohem. It's very interesting that this is considered one of the main commentaries on En Yaakov, being that it's very much not in line with the teachings of Yaakov ben Khabib, but it's important because it kind of balances things out. If you were looking for a more Kabbalistic uh, way to approach the Agadah, you'd find it in one commentary. And if you're looking for a more rational way to understand the Agadah, you'd find it in the other commentary. Rabbi Yaakov ben Khabib didn't merit to finish and ultimately he passed away. And Rabbi Levi ben Khabib continued the work of his father as he mentioned in his introduction to the En Yaakov. But there's something else that's fascinating about the En Yaakov and it's not just a collection of Agadot. Here is something that we wish Rabbi Yaakov ben Khabib had collected the whole Talmud. The En Yaakov is a collection of Spanish manuscripts of the Talmud. Spanish manuscripts of the Talmud before there was Catholic censorship on printing of the Talmud. Manuscripts of the Talmud before they burned the Talmud in Italy, which caused for the Talmud to almost disappear in Italy. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. The Maharsha and the Maharshal both of them quote extensively in their halachic commentary on the Talmud from the Agadot of the En Yaakov because the En Yaakov was considered one of the most pristine manuscripts or copies of the Talmud still in existence. How much of our Talmud? There's almost not a page of the Talmud which hasn't had censorship done to it by the Catholic Church. If you look on the side of the Talmud, there's Gideonot, there's corrections. Corrections and amendments to the Talmud. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of corrections. Some mistakes, some misprints, some errors, and much of it is Hasensura, the censorship of the Talmud. Yeah. Uh, 
How do they have such influence even in countries that they can't control? Oh, very good. They had control of the press. They had control of the countries where the printing presses were. Italy is a Vatican uh, country. This is what it is. And where else? You're going to find that, interestingly enough, some of the books of the Talmud that were maintained were printed in Switzerland. It's interesting. We'll get there. We'll get to that part of history in just a moment. Let's talk about the Talmud. We mentioned En Yaakov. You'll find very often that there are references made to the En Yaakov, but they don't call it the En Yaakov. They call it the En Yisrael, or the Bet Yisrael. The reason being an ugly part of Jewish history. There was a famous pope. He was a Rasha. His name was Julius III. Julius III, he lived, I wrote that, from 1487 to 1555, and he became the Pope in 1550 until 1555. In this time period, there were a group of Jews, three, who had converted to Catholicism. And part of their desire to prove to the Catholic Church just how Catholic they were, was to show the Church that the Jews are really uh, anti-Christian, and that they're heretics, and they're writings of the Talmud are riddled with all kinds of evil things about Christianity and about the rest of the world. This is something that has never stopped. Until today, the Talmud has been attacked over and over, different groups and different times. Sometimes you read and you, you, you can't imagine that this stuff still goes around. But it still goes around. There was a famous professor in Germany. I want to tell you his name now. He converted to Judaism in Germany. It took him 10 years to do Giyur. Ten years he, stat, he studied kippah, beer, tzitzit in the Jewish community. All of this was part of his thesis that the Talmud is a book against humanity. He lied. He cheated his way through the Giro process. He spent ten years in the Jewish community and then left only to publish his magnum opus, which is an attack on Judaism in the Talmud, uh, through his experiences in the German Jewish community. This is something the anti-Semites of the world always like to attack the Talmud. This is part of their, this is what they do. This is their whole life. And they use and manipulate different sources of the Talmud to reach their point. It worked. And Julius III decided to ban the Talmud from Italy entirely. Not just ban, but to burn them. And I'll read to you what happens here. He gave everybody a month to bring their copies of the Talmud to the church so they could be burned in public. And anybody who wouldn't bring the copies of the Talmud would either be punished with a financial penalty, they'd be punished with imprisonment, or even death. And so Jews had to bring every set of the Talmud, or any books that contained Talmudic writings, to the Catholics, so the Catholics could burn them. They ended up burning over 10,000 books of the Talmud. You have to understand, this is the days where every book is expensive. It's every expensive. book is a... Ma- some of these books are not even printed. They're, they're, ma- they're, they're manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts. Copies of copies of copies of the Talmud. And it happens that at that point in time, the study of Talmud became very weak in Italy because Italian Jews simply did not have access to Talmudic literature. This lasted for a number of years. And if you know the period here of the Pope's there are two popes that change very quickly. And one of them, I believe, was pope only for about 22 days. He became the pope. He died about 22 days later. His name was Mar- Marsilius, Marseilles. Uh, that's an interesting name. And then another pope came after him. 
And this came until the time of Pope Pius IV. Pope Pius IV, he was the Pope from 1559 to 1565. He was born in 1499 and lived until he finished being the Pope. 1565. He decided to turn back the tide of the printing press against the Talmud and issued some kind of verdict that you would be allowed to print books of the Talmud as long as they were printed under different names than they were printed previously. And that's when En Yaakov became a different name. And they started cha- They printed the same book, but under different titles. And you'll see on the left side of the page, this is the introduction to the En Yaakov. But it's not called En Yaakov. But you'll see in bold, how many times it says Yaakov, 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 to let the Jewish people know it's the same book. You know when you get a new bottle of something, it's new, a uh, new packaging, but same great flavor. So it's the same idea that the printers were trying to do here. And uh, Baruch Hashem, since that time, this book returned back to the Jewish bookshelf. Let's talk a tiny little bit about Rabbi Yaakov ben Chabir. Question. Yes. Why there are so many versions of Rabbi Yaakov? Many, 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 many printings. Different oh. printers print different editions and sometimes they don't all do the same good job at printing the Enyakov. And that means that you have different variants between different volumes of Enyakov. The hardest part of Enyakov is when the text of the Enyakov doesn't match the text of the Talmud that you have in front of you. And it becomes very clear that you should never edit the Enyakov from the printing of the Talmud which is in front of you. Because the Talmud which you have is printed by Catholic Church censorship. And the En Yaakov that's different is most likely different because it's the original version of the Talmud. And many printers of the En Yaakov over history tried to fix the En Yaakov. Remember like by Rav Kapach They tried to fix, the people who are fixing are making problems. They didn't even realize. Everyone wants to edit something. But when I was going through this introduction of this book, I cannot tell you how many mistakes I found in the introduction. Typos, eh, number. Okay, it happens. My books also have uh, mistakes. But I was very careful not to... Look, what I did was... I wrote little notes on the side. I think that this should be written this way. I think it should be written that way. I'm not going to go through and cross something out and then write... Not that anyone's ever going to look at my books in the future. But as a matter of principle, don't edit things that you don't need to edit. It's not worth it. Just let it be the way it needs to be. Rabbi Yaakov ben Khabib. Yaakov and Khabib was born in Spain, like I told you, in uh, northern Spain. Somewhere? Yeah, it's like the wine that you have. Mm-hmm. He ends up dying in, in Greece. So his life takes him, he's born 1460. So what makes him leave Spain? Expulsion. The Spanish expulsion. He's expelled from Spain along to the next stop, which is... Portugal. And Portugal gets expelled again, where he continues traveling through and ultimately finding a safe haven in Greece. Why is Greece such a safe place? Who rules Greece? The Turks. It's under the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. The Turks were not the worst option for the Jews. It's interesting how history changes and countries change. <laughs> Today you might feel differently about Turkey than then. Yeah. But Turkey was the country that let the Jews come. Not just come, but agree. It wasn't just Turkey proper, but Greece, for example, Saloniki. Saloniki was one of the most glorious Jewish communities in the world. The community of Saloniki is, we're going to read about it soon. It's an unbelievable place. It's a capital of Torah, of yeshivot, of rabbis, of batei din. 
even in very recent history, before the founding of the State of Israel, Greek Jewish communities were considered the second place to being the chief rabbi of Israel. That was the place, especially for Sephardi Chacham, to go. But we're going to get to, let's not put the uh, wagon before the horse. <coughs> That's right, there are many communities that are left over uh, from the Greek and Rhodes and other communities from them. So he was born in Zamora, like we said, which is in the country or the province of Lyon in France, which is in the northern part of Spain. And he studied Torah from a very special Chacham, Bishmuel Valenci, who was one of the great Chachamim at the time. I might actually want to post in your uh, Google Classroom to look up a little bit about his life and other rabbis who were giants in his generation. He then moved on to be a rabbi in different places in Spain. And even though it says Bikesh Yaakov, even though Yaakov wanted to sit in Shalva in peace, unfortunately, Kaftalav, all kinds of things jumped on him, and he finds himself smack in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition. Mm. At this place, right before the Spanish Inquisition, there were giants who were living there, uh, like the giants of Castilla, Rabbi Yitzchak Kanpanton. I'm going to put his name in the Google Classroom also. Uh, the Mari Abu Hav. Who's Mari Abu Hav? He later Tzfat. moves to Tzfat. Yeah? And the famous Bet Knesset, the Mari Abu Hav, is in Tzfat. The Bet Yosef, Maran, praises Mari Abu Hav. Why? Because Mari Abu Hav is the rabbi of his rabbi. The Mari Berav studies by Mari Abu Hav. He's Rabbe de Rabbe. And there were a number of rabbis who lived right at the Spanish expulsion, Rabbi Yosef Chayun. Rabbi Yitzchak Arama, who's Rabbi Yitzchak Arama, wrote a commentary on the Torah. No, Akedat Yitzchak. Professor Nachama Libut quotes him a lot in her commentaries on the Chumash. He's an unbelievable Chacham. Unfortunately, his books were printed very poorly until very recently. I just got my hands on a brand new set of Rabbi Yitzchak Arama. Printed, it got a little damage in the mail, but aside from that, printed with a brand new print, beautiful titles and everything like that. The whole set, maybe 15 volumes for $90. You can study today the writings of Rabbi Tzachakarama, one of the unbelievable Chachamim in the Talmud. Let's quote them often. I don't know how you... I'm not an expert. Rabbi Yosef Yabet and other rabbis like Don Yehuda Abarbanel. Who's Don Yehuda Abarbanel? Abarbanel? He's the son of Don Yitzchak. Yes? Rabbi Abraham Zakut or Zakuto, you might hear some people say. And included in this camp is the Mahari Ben Khabib. Mari Abu Hav was also the rabbi of Maran's uncle. Maran has an uncle. Rabbi Yosef Karo has an uncle named Rabbi Tzchak Karo. Rabbi Tzchak Karo is a student of Mari Abu Hav. So this is like the glorious time of Chachamim in Spain. You are dealing with Chachamim. Think about all the rabbis who ended up in Tzfat and how great they were. This is the leftover of who survived the Spanish Inquisition. And this is the, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain happens on Erev Tishabav, like you all know. It's nothing new to you. And in the month of Iyar, Fernando and his wife Zeresh, but really his wife Isabella, <laughs> they put out the decree of the expulsion. I'll read to you a little bit of the Hebrew translation of the Spanish expulsion. You should know that they are and it must be known. Because there were a few evil Catholics who rebelled against their Catholic faith and became Jews. 
What was the reason that Catholics go off the derech? The Catholics become Jews? Because the Jews and the Christians are intermingling with each other. Because we have accepted the advice of some of the uh, priests, and our advisors and the different councils, we're commanding that all of the Jews, male and female, be expelled from their country, from our kingdom, and they should never return. If we find them, we will execute them if they stay here. The Jews had three months to gather all of their possessions and get out of Spain. The story of the Spanish expulsion is famous. I know you all know it. I don't need to share it with you. But you can imagine what would happen. If someone told you, you have 90 days to pack everything up and go. There's no Israel. There's no El Al plane. There's your backpack and your feet and you could walk to the next country that will take you. Mexico doesn't take you. So where are you going to walk? Venezuela says they'll take Jews. Good luck. Go. Can you imagine such a thing? It's not, it's not like getting on a bus. Okay, so we'll move out of San Diego, go to LA. It's not what's happening here. It's not even from one country next door. It's the Jews must get up and get out. Don Yudah Barbanel writes some pretty tragic things on page 32 and 33. Look here, I'm going to read to you his encounter with the king of Spain. Having the Barbanel family is uh, involved in royalty, advisors to the king. In the third paragraph on page 33. When I was there in the king, in the courtyard of the king, my, 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 uh, my throat was parched. Yes? I spoke to him two or three times. I begged him with my own mouth, save us the king. Why would you do this to your slaves? He wanted us to give him money and all kinds of, you know, money is always involved here. Don't think that it just has to do with anti. The anti-Semites are anti-Semites, but they have to convince the king that it's worth it for them financially. Kind of like Haman. Haman knows the Chashverosh. He likes, he hates the Jews, but not as much as Haman does. Haman pays the king to hate the Jews. Normally you follow the trail, it always has to do with money, somewhere. Okay, this is going, going. Um, we tried, but nothing helped. Right, okay, this is the queen was always there in his ear, whispering to him that he shouldn't listen. And he says, this is a sentence here where he says, the king, the king was like deaf. He didn't listen to me. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Oh, the king was mute. He didn't listen. Didn't, didn't want to speak. He was deaf. Didn't want to speak to us. He says, it comes out, says, we went out 300,000 people on foot. 
מנער ועד זקן, טף אנשים ביום אחד, מכל מדינות המלך, it's all quoting play on words from story of פורים. We all went out from Spain by foot. אל אשר היה שם הרוח לכת אלכו. Wherever the wind will blow us, that's where we go. ומצאום בדרכם צרות רבות וראות השוד והשבר והרעב והדבר. He said there's some terrible things that happened, pillaging and raping and, and uh, stealing and looting that happened to the Jews along the way. By the way, there's a dot dot dot. I recall reading once in the original from the Barbanan. He writes that until then he knew animals walked on four legs, but he never knew animals walked on two legs also. ורבים בני שוממה לעבדים ושוחות נמכרו בכל גלילות הגויים ורבים טובעו בים סוף, צלו כעובר במים אדירים. And many were sold as slaves, especially the women, to different non-Jewish households. He said many of them drowned in the sea. וגם מהם באו באש כי נצרפו העניות וטבעו במש השם. He said some of the boats caught fire, the ships, and they burned alive in the ships. צדי ה. He quotes here from Rishlomo ibn Verga. Rishlomo ibn Verga was one of the big chachamim. He quotes here a story from him in the footnote. He tells, There were some Jews that were exiles of Spain were there. There was a plague there. He, the, cabernet, the captain threw them out. Onto dry land somewhere. Most of the Jews that were thrown off the ship died of starvation on that. That, that, that wasn't an island, but it was a, like a dry land that he left them there. And some of them walked until they could find a place where they were inhabited by people. And one Jew with his wife and two children, they tried very hard to keep walking with no food and water. And the woman was so weak that the wife, she just passed out and died. And this man was walking and carrying his two children, and both of his children died from hunger. And when he woke up from being fainted, he saw that both of his sons didn't just faint, but they had died. And he stood up and he said, Master of the world, You're working very hard so I should leave my Jewish faith. You should know with absolute faith against the will of any of you who are sitting up there in heaven. I am a Jew. And I will remain a Jew. And nothing that you do to me is going to stop me from being Jewish. And he gathered from the dirt and from the weeds and he buried his sons. And he went to go find a place to live. Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Verga writes, Verga writes this in uh, his book where he talks about all the things that happened to the Spanish Jews. On page 34, they finally make it to Turkey, the Turkish Empire. And he writes here, in one of his letters, Rabbi Yaakov ben Khabib, that he finally got to meet giant rabbis here in Turkey. Now, how does he describe giant rabbis? For me, this is one of the, the greatest uh, pieces here. He talks about all that they left behind. There were three of our great leaders that led us all together.
כי בוודאי כדאי היה כל אחד מהם לתאר את השרץ בפלפולו. Every one of our rabbis in Spain was so great that he could make insects kosher through his brilliance. How does he describe the greatness of the Chachamim? That they had the power, they had the power to permit things. They were so genius that they were able to, through the lens of Torah, be able to permit things. Now it's not just Rabbi Yaakov ben Chabib who writes this. If you look with me on the next page, on page uh, 35, you have here um, a letter to Saloniki, or from Saloniki. He writes, That there's a great praise for the city of Saloniki. Look at the last three lines. Great rabbis, who know how to use the Torah to permit forbidden foods to be permitted. And this is what makes the Tamir Chacham great. They're quoting from the Talmud. The Talmud says, There are 150 ways to purify the impure. Now there Talmud maybe is referring to it in a negative way. But he doesn't say, look how great these rabbis are that everything they have is prohibited. Look how great these rabbis are that they're able to permit things. Back to the letter I showed you on page 34, and the last line, he's afraid. He says, I'm afraid all of our great rabbis have perished in the Inquisition, and now we're left. We're left to lead the Jewish people. He said, You know this line? What's Biata Bekutcha? It's a reference to Gemara Masech Ketubot. The Gemara Masech Ketubot and Samech Hamud Bet. The Gemara says there are some simple halachot that every child knows. Every child knows you can't have meat with yogurt, yes? Yeah. Every child knows that you can have eggs with yogurt. Yeah? What is kutach? Yogurt. So you can have, every, every, even those halachot we're afraid to teach. And it says, He says, it's better sometimes if someone will pay you, for each word you say, you'll get paid more if you don't say anything. So we're a widowed, uh, orphan generation. We don't have our great rabbis anymore. Finally comes the Saloniki, and he finds some great Hamdechamim. And Rabbi Yaakov ben Khabib finds a big problem in Turkey, under the Ottoman Empire. Who came there? Jews from different parts of Spain. Jews from Portugal. Jews from different parts of Turkey. And there are no standards there. There are no standards in Shechita. There are no standards in Kashrut. There are no standards in, in Halakha in general. There everyone opens up their own synagogue. In fact, he becomes a synagogue of Jews who are Megoshim from here. And then he becomes a rabbi of a synagogue of Jews who are Megoshim from there. And Yaakov and Khabib gets together with the rabbis of his generation on page uh, 36. And he makes Takanot in the year 1913. 1914? It can't be. It can't be. No. No. That must be a wrong date that I translated. In those years, after the Spanish expulsion, he makes... Oh, maybe 1514, yeah. He makes over there, Takanot, to unite the Jewish community together. He gets other rabbis on board. Among the rabbis that are on board with him, a famous rabbi, the Maharajdam, Rabbi Shmuel de Modena, who was a student of his, and also a chavruta of his son, Rabbi Labib ben Khabib, or maybe a student of his son, and you find here on page 36, more takanot that he makes regarding Yibum. There's a big problem. Jews were becoming converts to Catholicism. Now you had women 
who their husband died. He didn't have children. They needed to marry the next one in the family, but the next one in the family wasn't Jewish anymore. She now needs Yibum or Chalitza from a man who doesn't believe in the Jewish faith. Many of the precedents that the Ma'ari ben Khabib sets there in Halakha is ultimately what helps us in later generations when you deal with the same issues. You have a man who passes away, but his brother doesn't care about Halakha. His brother lives in Oklahoma, Minnesota, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. He needs a, he doesn't want to come to Bedin. What do you do? He dealt with these situations, and you'll see here on page 37 in the bold. He signs Yaakov ben Chaviv along with Bishlomo. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Tiatachak, Tiatzak. I don't know. I tried to look for a Spanish or English version of it. I couldn't find it. Uh, he yeah. learned. He learned with the Rabbach. He was a student both of the Mari ben Chaviv, Yaakov, and a student of the Mari Abu Hav. Maran quotes Mari ben Chaviv, Yaakov ben Chaviv. He quotes him not as the compiler of Agadot. If you look here, Maran says. Ulinyan halacha to the right of the picture. You see the picture on page thirty-seven. There's a, like a photocopy of a Beit Israel. Ulinyan halacha, and in matters of halacha, ra'uy lechush divrei ra'avad. You should be concerned about the words of the ra'avad. Sh'arashba ve'aran machzikim dvarav, because the rashba and the ran both uphold his words. Ukmosh shehoraz zaken v'yoshev b'shiva, and like uh, the elder who sits in the yeshiva ruled. Mahari ben Khabib, Ubi Yaakov ben Khabib. So whereas we know the Mahari ben Khabib to be the author of Agadot, really he was known to the Sephardic Jewish community as the Posek, the elder of the Yeshiva. If you look in the bottom, not here yet, not here yet, on the next page. Look in the bottom of page 39. You want to come with me there for a minute? So the last page that I photocopied for you. The bottom of page 39, it footnote Kuftet Zayim. Maran writes, Maran. I received a copy on most of the first volume of Shukhan Aruch, the Mari Abu And I received also a copy of the beginning of the Orachayim and Yuridah, the Shukhan Aruch, Larav Kumon Moreno Harav Yaakov Ben Khabibzan. Says, I will quote their works in Halakha and I will argue with them when I need to argue with them and you decide who you're going to follow. Min Maran again sees Mari ben Khabib as the author of works in Halakha which we don't have today. We don't have his writings on Shukhanuruch. We have some letters from him in Halakha but more than that, we don't have. On page 38, the Yaakov ben Khabib passes away. His son, look at the first three letters on the top of page 38. Hey, Chaf, Mem. You know what that stands for? Almost. It's a halakha. When someone's father passes away, when someone's father passes away, Shukhan Aruch says that the first year, whenever one mentions their name, they have to say? It's interesting what Jewish people do when it comes to mourning. 
covering mirrors and all kinds of... But when it comes to things that actually says Shukhan, what do Hey, Chaf, Mem. It should be, I'm not going to say it by myself. Baruch my father is alive and well. It's by somebody else. Harehu kaparat mishkavo. This person is the kapara for his father's resting. It's a halakha. Whenever someone says father's name, he has to say that. You can't just say his father's name anymore. Now from that on, he says it. And he says in the next sentence, these are the words, this is the Rabbi Levi, the son of Yaakov. So these are the words of the one, the bitter one who is sighing. Because of my sins, it's talking about himself, he says that his father, the crown of his head passed away. This is his father, my father, my father, a blessed memory. He's the one who lights up my eyes, the son of my eyes. He says, and if you wonder why I'm still acting as if he only passed away a year ago, because every day of my life I feel like he passed away now. And he said, every time a question of halakha comes to me, I feel like if only he was alive that I could still come and bring him my questions and he would sprinkle water of Torah on me. And then in the bold words, some, some deep things he writes about his father in old Sephardic poetry, which I don't want to get into now. If you look in the last, the last sentence in bold. Otem ozno He said that he always closed his ears from listening to all kinds of exaggerated praises of himself. Nivze be'enav nimas. He was uh, humble in his own eyes. She even despised. Kirea ke'ach yashav alimino. Kilo haya b'no ben Yaakov. He he was he taught he treated himself like a humble person. Baruch Hashem, Rabbi Yaakov ben Chaviv merited that many people studied his Torah. If you want to look here in the last page on thirty nine, Bigeret and the holy letter it's called of the author of the Tanya. Who's the author of the Tanya? He writes, This is don't worry about these things that happened to you, my beloved Chasidim. Give honor to Hashem your God. Before it gets dark, between Mincha and Arvit. To study with ten people the inner side of the Torah, the secrets of the Torah. The secrets of the Torah are the Agadah and in Yaakov. Shirov Sodot HaTorah Gnuzin Most of the secrets of the Torah are found inside of this book. Umechaperet Avonotav Shladam Kivarabu Kivar Arizal This is in according to the Ari. The study of in Yaakov can atone for a person's sins. This book will uh, fix a person's Averot. Did Averot in the past? Study of this book will fix it. Meaning, he's begging from his Chassidim that they should study in Yaakov in a groups of ten, meaning it's something important. Between Mincha and Arvid, every single day. I don't know a group of uh, Chassidim of Chabad who do this. But this was the desire of the first Lubavitch Rebbe. The Ben Ishchai. I want to actually read to you from the Ben Ishchai himself. Yeah, because here is just a quote from the Ben Ishchai, but you can follow along most of it here. Sorry about the microphone. The Ben Ishchai has a number of commentaries. Ben and Ben on the Agadot of Chazam. The Ben Ishchai writes 
Now, the Benish Chai's introduction to his books are normally very short. They're very short, not with a lot of information. Most of what he writes in his introduction to his books are prayers to Hashem, that his words should be accepted, that everything he writes should be correct, that Hashem should know that he only wrote these books Hashem Shemayim, and to make Hashem's name great in the world. He wrote it for no other prayer. Every one of his books starts in a similar way. There's special tefillot. Every book he writes his own tefillah for his book. In this book, the Ben Chai writes, "Vezoti min amudaim." It's known. Kipo irenu in this city. Where's the city? Baghdad. Minhag avotenu biadenu. The custom of our fathers is in our hands. Who minhag yadua vekavua? It's a known minhag. Likbua bechol yom et kavua la Torah achar tviyat shacharit. That everybody stays after shacharit and studies Torah. Lidmod bo to study together. Orachaim b'shuchan atahol. What's shuchan atahol? The holy, pure book. Everybody in the Bedeknesset would stay to study the first two volumes of Shulchan. I remember it only takes 30 days. So this one takes 14 days. No, study every day. Study Halachot. And after they study Shulchan Aruch, they studied every day after Shulchan Aruch and Yaakov. And they did this as a rule, a law, that they never broke every single day. That was what they did after the tefillah. Every day they study Shulchan Aruch and Agadot Chazal. And here in the Knesset, He said in this uh, synagogue, which was the Benish Chai's family synagogue, it's an interesting combination. You don't see it very often. His grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Moshe, came to the Lord and studied the Lord. His grandfather used to teach the Shur every day, Shulchan Aruch and Agadata. And his father, Rabbi Eliyahu, used to do this after his father. And after them, Zikani Hashem Barach, Hashem allowed me, gave me the merit, to sit in the place of my forefathers. And I also did the same thing. I taught every day Shulchan Aruch and Agarata. And I know that I am not worthy of this. And I'm much lower than my forefathers. He said, and Hashem always has ways to do free acts of kindness to me. And He allowed me to continue the tradition of my forefathers. To study Shulchan Aruch. And the next thing you study after Shulchan Aruch is to study the Agadot of our Rabbis. And I think at that note, that's somewhere we should stop. The Chavetz Chaim, also in World War One, he asked for people to put groups together in every city that should study any Yaakov together. From all the camps, people studied any Yaakov. But ultimately, I think the Ben Chai taught us a lesson. And that is after you know Shulchan Aruch well, you know Rambam well, so when do you begin to study Judaism? <laughs> That's the Agadot Chazal, the teachings of our rabbis. Many years ago I asked the Rappelitz if I should start a Gemara class in San Diego. He told me no. <laughs> Again, no. No. I said, a waste of time. Why a waste of time? Okay, you all know Rappelitz's opinions about Gemara. Obviously we study Gemara, but it depends how much time you have in your week to study. Remember, we learned Alakha together in Shulchan Aruch. If you have nine hours a day, it's a different story. If you're like a regular person who has nine hours, maybe a little bit of your time. If you only study four hours a day, then you don't have any time to study Gemara. If you only study four hours a week, how do you have time to study Gemara at all? So Rabbi said, the study Agadot Chazal 
is the foundation of Emunah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Benish Chai says, after you finish Shulchan Aruch, you close the book, and now you learn how to believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The beautiful part of the Agadatah is that because it is such a trail that has never been strolled down before, or so few have ventured down this trail, there is so much work that we together can put into the Agadah. It's possible that the conversations we'll have here are going to be different than any other shiur we have here. It's possible that you may come up with commentaries and understandings of Agadita that you never had an opportunity to think about before because in every other area of Talmud, there has to be a correct conclusion. You have to reach the same conclusion that Maran reached. You have to reach the same conclusion that Rambam reaches. You don't have the right to reach your own conclusion. But with Agadot, when you begin to collect different understandings from different Chachamim, and you could piece together ideas, one Agadah here connected to another Agadah there, because they are connected, because really they should have been put together by topic. You begin to expand your horizon on how to really be Jewish, not according to this one, or according to that one, or according to the next one, but according actually to the Chachamim. Someone should have done this work a very long time ago. And he tried. And we're here trying in San Diego for the first time in our community, really the second time because we once studied Agadah together here, for the second time in our community, to do this in a serious fashion, in a put-together fashion. And I have here now just a few warnings of when this all ends. To understand that your imagination has to be turned on when you use Agadah. For example, Rav Kook, his whole understanding, we're going to use some of his writings on Agadah. His whole understanding of Shema of night and Shema in the day Night being exile and daytime being redemption and the different themes that you always thought we're talking about halachot really have to do with concepts that are very connected to redemption and exile and the building of a Jewish homeland and the building of a Ben Mikdash. You would never think that that has anything to do with Shema Yisrael. That's one approach. That's going to be Rav Kook's approach to this whole sugya. Different Chachamim will have different ways. And because we're about to blaze a trail, we first have to have a toolkit. The toolkit will be by way of many introductions. Today was just a historical background. It's not an introduction. It's an introduction to an introduction. Next week, B'zalat Hashem, we'll be studying the introduction of the Rambam, the three camps of people who study Talmud. The first two who study it incorrectly for different reasons. And the third who understands it correctly. says the Rambam, but there's so few people in that group that you can't even call it a group. Just call it one person. Essentially, the Rambam then writes to all the people who don't appreciate the truth, to stop reading his books because they only cause him a lot of suffering and we're going to do the Rambam's introduction next week some of these assignments that we give out like I'm going to go home and probably in the next two or three days you'll get an email with the Rambam introduction in Hebrew there are some old there's a translation of the Rambam's introduction from 1904 so I'm going to attach it I can't promise you that the English is, is friendly I can't promise you that it really matches everything in the Hebrew. I'm adding it so those of you who Hebrew is not your first language will have what to do. Uh, so you'll have at least the basic knowledge of the Rambam until we get there. The same with Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam. I think the translation I have of the introduction of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam is from 1940. So that, in that uh, translation, you're going to have it as well. Uh, the next few Hagdamot might not have translations, but as soon as we get into the Gemara, which will be in three or four weeks from today, I'll be just on time for Pesach to do one or two Gemarot and then take a break. Yes? Uh, you'll bring any Gemara that you have that has Hebrew English or if you want one of the Enyakovs you can. If you want to use Sepharia, all I ask is that you print it because things that are in front of you that are written are different than things that you're using on your phone. Sepharia had a, a deal worked out with Rabbi Adin Steinzalt, that all of the English translations of Steinzalt to the Talmud are now provided for free 
on Safariya. So when you click on a piece of Talmud, no longer is it just in Hebrew in random, you know, open source translations, but it's the translation of Steinsaltz with Rashi and different commentaries there. You can click on the text, there's Hebrew, English. Uh, what's in bold is actually what's in Aramaic. What's not bold is the other English words that help you read it uh, better. Uh, some of you have Talmud in Spanish, like uh, Ovadia has over there. Uh, everybody's going to have a different book. Uh, there's not going to be page numbers as much as we're going to do these three sentences for next week. We'll get there when we get there, and that was my last warning. My last warning is patience. It's a better midrash. We're only meeting once a week. If we will learn every night together, then next Monday we'd already begin studying Gemara. But because we're meeting once a week, and we have to pace ourselves, so we'll be doing one week Rambam, one week Rambam, Rambam, perhaps another week or two the Ramchal and Rav Kook and the Benish Chai, and then we'll get straight into the Gemara. And from there on out, we'll be using the books of the Talmud. What I'm asking from you, don't lose your patience before we start learning Talmud. But the only way I can teach this Talmud responsibly is if I do so by giving you tools. If I don't give you the tools and I just jump into the Talmud, then what's going to happen is we'll go swimming, but you'll be drowning. And there's no reason to drown before you know how to swim. So come to the practice lessons. Learn with us how to swim. We're going to teach each other because I'm also learning how to swim with you. I don't purport, unlike Halakha, I don't purport to have the derech and understanding Agadot. But that's exactly what's so exciting about this. I feel like it's the first shiur where I'm going to sit with you and we're going to figure it all out together. Thank you for being here tonight. God willing, we'll see you next Thursday night at 7.30.